Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture. We are a non-profit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This presentation and many others are available through our online library at instituteofcatholicculture.org and on our ICC app. Whether you are looking for weekly Bible studies, in-depth courses, or talks related to the faith, you will find it at the ICC. Please check out our upcoming schedule of live online events and engage with us on social media. All are welcome to join our growing international ICC family. For handouts, links, and further study materials, please visit this program's page on our website or app. Let's begin in prayer. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. Heavenly King, Consoler, Spirit of Truth, present in all places and filling all things, the treasury of blessings and the giver of life, come and dwell within us, cleanse us of all stain and save our souls, O good one. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our speaker today is a native of California and a Dominican friar of the province of St. Joseph in the United States. After his ordination to the priesthood, Father Ezra Sullivan went to Rome, where he now serves as professor of moral theology and psychology at the University of St. Thomas Aquinas, commonly known as the Angelicum. He's published scholarly articles on bioethics, theology, and Catholic history, and has written two books on the Thomistic account of habits. His most recent book is entitled Alter Christus, Priestly Holiness on Earth and in Eternity. So please join me in welcoming back to the Institute of Catholic Culture, Father Ezra Sullivan. Welcome, Father Ezra. Good to have you this morning with us. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Well, I'll begin with a um, quotation from Karl Rahner, of all people. He noticed that other religions in the modern world, aside from uh, Catholicism, also apply to yoga. He said, every religion which exists in the world is, like all cultural possibilities and actualities, a question posed, a possibility offered, no longer merely theoretically, but in the concrete. And so the question that we have here in this episode and next time is, can Christians practice yoga? Or put more precisely, can Christians practice yoga without betraying or undermining or diluting their own faith? Or can yoga somehow strengthen Christian belief and practice? Or at the very least, can it be as neutral as baseball and as soccer? These questions very much matter to the yoga industry because more than $66 billion are estimated to be poured into yoga by 2027, and Christians are a large potential market. These questions also matter to, well, Christians around the world. There are more than 300 million yoga practitioners, about 9 million of whom are Christians in India, the birthplace of yoga. In the United States, the number of practitioners has increased from a mere 3% in 1976 to about 28% of people in the U.S. report to have tried it. Here in Italy, where I am, of course, classically a Catholic 
country for 2,000 years, more or less, 11% of women say that they regularly practice yoga. Now, practice among Christians, of course, remains highly controversial. A number of studies have indicated widespread divergence on opinion about how people ought to relate to yoga and their own religion. So, for instance, a survey in England found that half of evangelicals said that Christians should never do yoga. And out of those who said that Christians could do yoga, nearly a quarter of those said they would never do so themselves. It's okay for others, but I'd never do it. An American study in 2007 said that 4% of less active Christians utilize yoga to grow spiritually, whereas people who are more active in their local church aren't interested. Italians, of course, can't agree on the matter either. 19% of Italians say that it's a spiritual exercise, not just physical. And maybe this smaller group of Italians is on to something, because they've found that after regular practice, about 13 years, 78%, so people who have practiced yoga for 13 years, 78% of them consider yoga to be a spiritual path. Very interesting. Now, more concretely, we can go to um, the slides here. So we're looking now at the question of the worldwide yoga phenomenon and questions about whether Catholics can practice it. This is a question that I've been asked many times, and because I don't know anything about it, I decided to try to ask people who might know. So in 2018, Bishop Joseph Kalarangat of the Suru Malabar Doctrinal Commission of India, he's a bishop down there in Kerala, he made news by declaring that the theology of yoga is incompatible with Christianity. This led to a flurry of discussion because the Modi government has leveraged yoga for nationalist ends, even to the point of instituting an international yoga day, making the practice compulsory in ne nearly every elementary school. Yoga, of course, has also garnered pub uh, public controversy in the U.S. In 1993, the Alabama Board of Education banned yoga instruction in schools, saying that it was religious. That ban lasted until 2021. Meanwhile, other kinds of public school issues and controversies, lawsuits have happened even in California, where a Christian group won a suit saying that yoga was indeed religious based on basic criteria for what counts as religion. And then among the Hindus, there's also controversy because some, what we might call a conservative Hindu group, have said that people are misinformed, miseducated, they don't understand that people are actually practicing Hinduism when they're doing yoga. We want yoga back, Rajan Zed said, the leader of the Universal Society of Hinduism. He publicly announced that Hindus want a legislator move to show that yoga is always part of their tradition. And we can go on and on about the controversies. But what I'm going to tell you is what I did to try to find answers amid all this tangle of disagreements and various opinions. I scoured libraries. I talked to yoga practitioners in the United States. I witnessed, you know, some of these things. I myself don't practice yoga. And people disagreed. I couldn't find an authoritative answer. So I decided to raise money and I traveled to India. I, I went along with 
another of my Dominican brothers. And there he is. He looks a bit like me. <laughs> a bit bigger beard, though. And we met with different gurus, and we met with yogis. We met with Catholics. We met with agnostics, atheists. We went to New Delhi. We went down to Kerala, where the Christians are, especially, you know, they're Christians also up in Goa and other places. And we also went to Rishikesh, which is a small village at the foot of the Himalaya Mountains that's right on the Ganges River, and it's said to be the birthplace of yoga. I interviewed many people. I asked them, what is yoga? Can Christians practice it? Why do you think they can or cannot do so? And in the end, I didn't get any consistent answer. And so what you're going to see is my response. In light of all of that, all the work that I've done, all the research over, over 10 years, actually, of research, this is the result. And this is just scratching the surface. I am not an expert. I don't know Sanskrit. And there will be many people who could disagree with me. So this is just my humble opinion offered to you. Now, with the question, can the church support and promote yoga? And of course, can individuals within the church do so? I first want to point out that the, the different positions line up to be three, essentially. Three different positions on yoga, we might say. The first one is what I call the integralist position. And it essentially says Christianity and yoga are completely incompatible. I call this integralist because this view sees yoga and Christianity as integral wholes. And like oil and water, they don't mix. There are a number of different people from different backgrounds who hold this position. One is uh, a famous Protestant minister named Albert Muller, president of the Southern Baptist Seminary, Pat Robertson. And they have written works and they've gone publicly saying that the classical form of yoga, quote, is against biblical values. It is a participation in idolatry. Catholics, some have unequivocally rejected yoga. And um, the, some of the people that I met down in India have said the same thing. In fact, the Thomas Christians, those who have practiced Christianity since Thomas arrived on the shores of Kerala, they say that they cannot practice it. And there was a, uh, a sister that I met, a religious sister, Indian, and, um, and she said that it could be practiced. And it was so controversial that she ended up in the newspapers there. People worry about the Hinduization of the Catholic Church in India for those who try to practice yoga and still keep their faith. Others say that uh, yoga is inc incompatible. The chief exorcist of Rome, Father Gabriel Amors, when he was alive, he wrote against it, saying that yoga is a work of the devil. Many bishops have written against yoga. The Croatian Bishops Conference and a number of individual bishops in uh, Florida, in Ireland, and elsewhere. Now, the highest levels of the church on a doctrinal level have not spoken about this. The Congregation for the Doctrine of Faith has said almost nothing. They only have in a footnote of a document saying yoga is a type of non-Christian meditation. That's it. But very interestingly enough, you might be interested to know, the Eastern Orthodox churches, the highest doctrinal body of the Greek Orthodox Church, its standing synod in 2020 said that it cannot be practiced by Greek Orthodox. Very interesting. And this came from um, a, a group that had looked at this since 2015. 
And likewise, the Bulgarian Orthodox Holy Synod has denounced yoga. Now, it's not only Christians who say that yoga and Christianity are incompatible. Hindus say the same thing. As I pointed out before, some Hindus who say that, well, yoga is theirs, and so you shouldn't practice it. One nationalist writer, Rajiv Maholtra, has written saying that he thinks that Christians are deluding themselves if they believe that they can be both Christian and Hindu, and that means practicing yoga. So that's the first position. The second position is what I call the nominalist position, and this is that Christianity and, and yoga are completely compatible, so it's the other extreme. And this is called nominalist because it's that Christianity or yoga are things in name only. And so people think that if you just change the name, then you can do it. So there's a group called Christians Practicing Yoga, and they make this statement. They say, we are Christians who practice and often teach yoga. Some of us teach yoga with an explicitly Christian focus in class, and some of us um, do both. Some of us call it Christian yoga, and others say we practice yoga. And they said, we don't want to Christianize yoga because we think that yoga is fully compatible. So it's not, a, it's not a question there of changing the practices at all. They see them as completely unitable. Some Hindus have suggested the same thing. There's a fellow named Sarvapelli Radhakrishnan, and he says that Christianity and Hinduism ultimately believe the same thing because they are directed toward the same goal. And so he says this absolute monotheism, whereby religions are just the surface level of reality, but behind the religious expressions is a deeper reality where they all unite. This would mean that on the surface, yoga and Christianity might seem to disagree, but deep down, they have the same goal and the same spirit that moves them. Finally, there are some who say that Christianity is compatible with yoga, at least in the West, because yoga is the result of a market capitalism commodity. And so Andrea Jane has said that what is called yoga in the West is no longer truly yoga, and therefore it's totally compatible with Christianity because it's been reduced and eliminated, stripped of all its uh, religious aspects. So that's position two. Position three is the following. I call it the adaptationist approach. And it says that Christianity and yoga are partly compatible. And this would mean that there's going to be something regarding Christianity and something regarding uh, yoga that can overlap in such a way that doesn't do harm to either. And so, for instance, there is a, a famous um, scholar of uh, religious history and re religious foundations named Mercelia Eliade. And he said that yoga has always been adapted. It adapted itself to Hinduism, it has adapted itself to Buddhism, and it can adapt itself to Christianity. So yoga's adaptiveness just means that it can then be this experience of the sacred in lots of different contexts. In the 1960s, a number of Christians believed this as well. There's a famous fellow named Jean-Marie Deschenais. He was a French Benedictine priest, left his monastery, and um, he started to practice yoga. He said that he found that his emotions were calmer, he had greater self-control by practicing yoga than being in the monastery. Very interesting. And so he says in his view, it would be possible to adapt at least hatha yoga. 
perhaps the other kinds, not so much. Well, what's the difference? Well, we'll get to that later. Finally, we see a lot of Christians even now um, making money off of different programs that try to adapt yoga to some form or another. There's a woman named Brooke Boone. She has holy yoga. And she says she embraces all of the essential elements of yoga, which she lists as breathwork, pranayama, meditation, and the physical postures, which would be the asanas. While she says she makes Christ her intention. Others have written books called Yoga for Christians. And then there are some who say that they can't ad adapt everything from yoga, but perhaps just the postures. And this would be uh, groups such as Pietra Fitness. On the one hand, Pietra Fitness says that they want an alternative to yoga. It's not Christian yoga or Catholic yoga. On the other hand, it says that there are some movements that belong to yoga and other kinds of exercise. And so those things can be redeemed and incorporated into a Christian prayer life. So Pietra rejects things like chakras and the idea of saying namaste, but it does believe that some things are adaptable. And I do have to give, um, you know, I, I have to be open that um, I've worked with Pietra Fitness for a long time. So my presentation isn't about them, and it's not about their, their position per se, but I have advised them for a number of different years, and, um, and I'm, I'm not a member or anything like that, but they have been, definitely been influenced by my position. Okay, so um, before we get to whether you know, we can adapt things or not, and if so, how, um, the first question we have to ask is, so we want to ask ourselves, um, what is yoga? How is yoga practiced and why? So let's begin with this question about what is yoga? Because when we want to know whether or not we can practice something, we want to ask ourselves, well, what is it? What is the thing we're talking about? Is there a thing that we can identify as yoga? Because if we can't, then ultimately our question doesn't even make a lot of sense. And so saying, what is yoga? From a Catholic perspective, from the theology of St. Thomas Aquinas, we're going to notice that there are different ways of understanding a human moral act. So the etymology of yoga. So, so before we get there, then um, I'll note that um, it's very standard for scholars to talk about the words Sanskrit origins. So the word yoga comes from the root yug which um, is actually the same in English as the word yoke. And um, yoga actually has a lot of different meanings in ancient yoga literature, meaning anything from union to conjunction, like when two stars align, you know, when Mars is, I don't know, over Jupiter or something. Um, yoga as in uh, the union of your power with another, like in magic, or the union of different numbers, like a summary. Perhaps one of the best ways of encapsulating this idea of yoking is um, an ancient commentator on a work by a fellow who is called the founder of yoga. His name was Patanjali, and Patanjali wrote Yoga Sutras. And a Yoga Sutra, essentially, a sutra is a string of beads. And so um, when we see like a rosary, that would be a sutra. Or, um, or sometimes you'll see uh, Hindus have a string of beads and they pray with those. They're saying certain mantras. 
So uh, Yoga Sutra was the string of thoughts about yoga. And one of the commentators on this classic work was a man named Vyasa. And he said, yoga is samadhi. Well, what does that mean? Well, in, in ancient yoga literature, samadhi means essentially the union of the individual self with the transcendental self. And this transcendental self exists beyond all finite, physical, visible being. And so this idea then is that you are united with this larger being that pervades the universe. And by yoga, you actually transcend uh, transcend yourself, but you do it by going in. Another way to understand this is the, the Greek word ecstasy. Ecstasy in Greek comes from two words, ex and stasis. Ex meaning out and stasis is uh, to stand, like the standing point of where you are. And so ecstasy is, if, if we think of St. Teresa of Avila, she, she experiences the divine love of God, and then she has this ecstasy. She goes out of herself, and she's united with the one she's, she loves. So that's, in a way, a symbol of the Catholic understanding of union with the divine, as we go out of ourselves to the divine trinity, and we enter into the love that exists from all eternity. They're, they're separate persons. Whereas the idea of yoga is you go into yourself, you find the divinity within, and by doing so, you discover that yourself doesn't exist at all. There's this transcendental self that exists everywhere. You, and so by going in, then you disappear and you dissolve. So that's, that's the essence of this idea of union. It's not union like St. Teresa of Avila with the Holy Trinity. It's actually union with a self in such a way that you disappear. There is no you. The enlightenment that comes from yoga is to recognize that all visible things that you think exist actually are not existent. One way that um, some yoga philosophers have described this is, um, and I described this in my, uh, my talk on Hinduism, is to say that um, all, all being that exists is simply the adjustment of material things like a long and infinite chain of being. And, and this chain exists, and it's like a curve in the chain. If you whip the chain, then there's a curve that flows by. And so what you need to do through yoga is realize that, that the turnings of these material things are also turnings in your mind. Yoga calms those turnings down, and now you have peace because you're at one with this greater self. So the way that yoga is defined by Patanjali is the cessation of the turnings or the aberrations of your mind. And by doing that, you realize that you are at one with this larger universe and you don't exist. But let's go back because this sounds very speculative and abstract. And let's go back to some of the oldest texts that we have that talk about yoga. And the first of these is called the Rig Veda. And here we'll look at, um, we just have a little uh, picture of the um, the Vedas. So um, I'm not going to translate that for you. It'll take a little bit of time. But, um, but I, I have a list of all of the early texts that speak about yoga. And some people may be surprised about how old they are. And um, I'm going to give you just a few quotations from each of them. So first we have the Rig Veda, which is considered to be the foundational and most divine of all Hindu texts. 
it speaks about sacrifices to the sun and it introduces us to a wind girt ascetic. Now, if you're girt by the wind, if all you're wearing is the wind, that means you're wearing your birthday suit. And it says that this one who is girt by the wind, who is worshiping the sun, the gods enter him and he becomes the comrade of every god with his good action. A few centuries later, we have this work called the uh, Atharva Veda. It offers what some scholars have called a proto-yoga, and it praises breath as the god prana. And this means that the god, through pranayama, that is breath control, combined with certain physical postures, that they embody the god's actions. Here's what the Atharva Veda says. It says, homage to breath in whose control is all. Homage to God breathing, O breath. Make homage to God making expiration. So by breathing in and out, in some way you're united to God. This concept of yoga becomes more developed and more precise in light of the Upanishads. Once again, a few centuries later, the Kathad Upanishad presents the self as a rider in a chariot and describes yoga as the state when the senses are firmly reined in. It says that when man is free from distractions, yoga is the coming to be as well as the seizing to be. And this is what I was describing about this chain, this material chain, which is always moving, is when you harness your breath and you have a certain posture, the idea then is that you come to be part of this transcendental self, but who you are as an individual disappears. The Upanishad also states that this uh, set of yoga, this uh, rules is taught by death. Death teaches us about yoga. Very, very interesting. And then finally, we have the Bhagavad Gita. And it's, it also uses the image of the chariot, but it goes further. Because the, the Gita tells us that yoga requires practice. You have to renounce the body. You have to utter the word Om as a mantra. And you call upon Krishna as the Lord of Yoga. Krishna is one of the chief of the uh, Vedic gods. And by doing so, then you become absorbed into the divine. Now, some people will say that these ancient texts actually have nothing to do with modern yoga, that they just coincidentally talk about harnessing your breath and practicing postures and being inhabited with the gods. What's very interesting is that we have exterior evidence that something like what yogis do now was happening well before Christ. The Greek author Plutarch re relates that when Alexander the Great crossed the Indus River, this is around 326 BC, he discoursed with the Greeks and with these people that they found, the Indians, that they called the gymnosophoi. Now, what's a gymnosophist? Well, essentially, it's people who were doing these things. They said that some of the men they found were hanging upside down on a tree. Some were standing on one foot, baked in the sun for a long time. Others would keep one arm up in the air until from fatigue he would crash to the ground. They called them gymnosophoi because the word gymno comes from the same word that we have as gymnast. The idea then is they're, they're doing some kind of gymnastic work. They're using their bodies in a way. But they're also sophoi, and the word sophoi comes from the same word as sophistry, but also sophia means wisdom. And so 
when Alexander the Great and his army crossed the Indus River and they saw these men, they said, these men are trying to find wisdom through their gymnastics. And so they're called gymnosophoi. And it's very interesting because this is quite a different way of trying to achieve wisdom than that than what the Greeks did. After Alexander the Great, of course, we have people like Plato and Aristotle who believed that wisdom came from understanding. And although you had to have a body that was apt or fit for the understanding, the distinction between the mind and the body meant that you could become a great gymnast and be a bad philosopher, or you could be a a wonderful philosopher, but a bad gymnast. And so those two things don't always go together. Now, one uh, element in yoga history that I also wanted to bring to your attention, because it's it's often uh, unknown or overlooked, is not only were people in India you know, practicing yoga with sort of Hindu overtones for many centuries, that... Um, Muslims eventually, they came from the north of India, and um, they, they eventually conquered uh, the northern part of India. The Mughal dynasty was founded, and with that, they began to encounter these new people, the, the Hindus, and they started to notice a lot of their religion. Most Muslims actually rejected Hinduism as idolatry. Some Muslims, uh, they actually destroyed some of the temples. And um, over a series of hundreds of years of you know, Muslim rule, many hundreds of uh, temples were destroyed. However, there was one group called the Sufis. And the Sufis were a sect of mystical Muslims. Um, a close way to think about it, this isn't exactly correct, but they're somewhat, they're somewhat like the Carmelites of the, of the Islamic world, meaning that they focus more on prayer. They talk about the love of God. They have a lot of poetry and this sort of thing. So the Sufis, they translated a text um, from Hindi or Sanskrit into Arabic. And this text, which um, it, it dates at least from the 1500s, it could be a bit earlier, it actually talks about different yoga postures. Very interesting, because by the time this text became popular, and it's called the pool of the water of life, or sometimes it's called the ocean of life, this text became so popular with um, Sufi mystics that many different rulers of India who were Muslim ended up paying for yogis in their ashrams to do their thing. And some Muslims actually worked to integrate some yoga practices into their own Islamic understanding. In fact, they, they came so much to want to integrate some elements of yoga that a legend arose that Muhammad had actually been trained by a yogi. And they said that we know this because Mecca was originally, and, and even this is in the oldest hadiths, which are the commentaries um, or the stories about the life of, of Muhammad. They actually tell us that Mecca was originally a place of idolatry and there were lots of idols there. And so these yogis in India, they said, yes, that's right. So when, when Muhammad went to Mecca with all of the idols, he actually was accompanied by an Indian yogi, a guru, who taught Muhammad yoga, but eventually Muhammad rejected it, and then he founded his own religion. And so it's very interesting. I mean, I don't think there's really any uh, historical basis for the claim, but it shows that these Muslims in the Middle Ages were quite interested in trying to appropriate yoga to themselves. Um, a census taken in 1891 said that 17% of the yogis in India 
were Muslim. Can you believe that? 17%. But that, that number dropped to 5% um, within 30 years in the 1920s, and now that number is almost zero. But for a little while there, it's very interesting that this sort of syncretistic uh, view tried to arise. Why did it disappear? Well, because eventually Muslims believed that uh, yoga was inseparable from its Hindu roots. Now, this is bringing us to the modern day, because arguably the most prominent ways in which um, Hindus have rebranded or adapted or transformed their traditions has been with regard to yoga. And a key figure here is a man named Narendranath Datta, who came to be known as Swavi, Swami Vivekananda. You can see he lived up into the early 1900s. He stands at the confluence of many different streams of traditions. One was that he joined a group called the Brahmo Samaj, which was trying to have a reform of Hinduism in light of British colonialism. What's funny, though, is that in rejecting British colonialism, they drew on the work of a fellow named Emanuel Swedenborg. And if you know about him, he was a Swedish man who believed he had visions. He talked about uh, general pantheism. He rejected divinity of Christ. So already we have Vivekananda, and he's he's sort of rejecting certain elements of, of British uh, influence, but then he's <laughs> accepting the influence of this other European fellow. But not only that. Vivekananda, he became a member of the Calcutta Freemason Lodge. And he also, of course, loved to quote scripture. So why not? Let's bring it all together. Vivekananda spoke of a universal religion that would welcome everybody. When he quoted scripture, he would only quote select verses about love of neighbor or about charity. The, the sort of verses that could have an ambiguity, the love of God. He praised Jesus. He said that Jesus was divine, but he said that maybe Buddha was divine, and so was Ramakrishna and many other avatars of the divinity. So some people, in seeing the surface level of some Hindu yoga thought, they say, oh, look, they use the language of Christianity. They talk about love of God. They say that we can be united with the divinity. But if we understand the roots of this perspective in Vivekananda, he says also, in places that not many people realize, he says Christianity serves as a more primitive form of truth along the path which Hinduism fulfills. And so he says, in yoga classes, we accept all religions as true, but Hinduism is the most true because it embraces and surrounds and fulfills Christianity. And so he says, of course, yoga is completely compatible with Christianity because yoga is the path by which Christians can enter into a higher enlightenment. For him, Hatha yoga, which is the yoga which practices mostly with postures, which they call asanas, he says that begins with the physical body, but it ends in the spirit, in what he called raja yoga. When you get to this higher state, you don't even need the physical postures anymore because your mind is now more closely united with the universal spirit. Now, unsatisfied with his individual efforts in India, Vivekananda came to the United States in the uh, mid-1800s, and in doing so, he created great interest in Hinduism. People like Ralph Waldo Emerson, uh, Thoreau, and others started to read these Hindu manuscripts for the first time ever in English. 
and Vivekananda helped to popularize this idea that one can continue to be a Hindu or a Christian or a Muslim or a Freemason and still practice yoga. Now, Vivekananda did practice postural yoga, but he's not considered to be the founder of modern yoga. The, the next person that we're going to talk about is called you know, the, the father of modern yoga. And this is T. Krishnamacharya. And he says, basically, that he wanted to spread a form of yoga that could be accessible to all beyond religious sectarianism, gender, caste, or nationality. Now, why would he say that? Why would he say beyond gender, caste, or nationality? Well, because for centuries, yoga was only practiced by men, not women, caste only by Brahmins, who were the highest caste in India, and so they were the priestly caste. They would practice yoga postures, and then they would go perform their sacrifices. Or they would perform a sacrifice like a puja, which could, uh, they thought, would sanctify the place in which yoga would be performed. They would have uh, a statue of a god. They would pour the ghee butter into the fire. They would perhaps uh, sprinkle incense or flowers. There are different ways of performing the puja. And, and this would then sanctify this area so yoga could be performed. But only the Brahmins could do this. And then he says nationality, because before that, uh, before him, most Brahmins refused to teach non-Brahmins in India, and they definitely refused to teach non-Indians. It was quite rare, in fact, for a non-Indian to be allowed to learn yoga. But he wanted to bring a new form to the world. While never ab abandoning the Vedic roots, those that speak of yoga, as in the Rig Veda and the Upanishads, but he wanted to now give a new life by transforming yoga into something open to everybody. His extraordinary fruitfulness can be seen in many of his students, some of whom have been the most influential founders of their own yoga systems. And one of them we'll talk about in a minute. But let's focus right now on Krishna Macharya. With a narrative like many modern gurus, he was of a Brahmin family, high caste, he claimed to be himself apprenticed by a guru that he met in Tibet who gave him uncanny powers. He was able, and, and this is true, people witness this, he's able to stop his heart. He could stop his heart from beating, at least for a short period of time. Um, he claimed to have learned thousands of yoga postures from this fellow in Tibet, and he learned the secret of yoga in a dream from an avatar of a god. He says that in a dream, this, this god came to him under the likeness of a sage and taught him hymns to a deity. And these hymns, he said, would help him to gain the enlightenment that would help him to perform yoga well. Very interesting. He says that um, ultimately, the worship of Vishnu, who is another of the Hindu gods, was never fully absent from his system. Even though he didn't talk about Vishnu, Vishnu was always there, sort of like a quiet friend in the room. And he says, by means of yoga, it's that, that is the way to develop bhakti, which is devotion to Vishnu as he understood it. So, so the founder of yoga in modern times specifically wanted it to be the first step on the road to devotion to these gods. Now let's go to the final uh, modern founder. And there are lots of different yoga traditions, many different gurus and so on. But this is one of the most famous and by far the most influential, B.K.S. Iyengar. And he, uh, he died in 2014. This is his 
most famous book, Light on Yoga, which was published in the 1960s. And he has been considered the most visible and influential figure in the expansion of Hatha Yoga, that with postures, in the 20th century. In fact, they say for over 60 years, he was the chief guru. And although others who founded their own systems, um, they might grudgingly admit it as well, simply from the power of his influence. He was a very good marketer. Iyengar, also a Brahmin who learned from Krishna Makira, he said that it was his experience first in learning um, from his guru, but eventually he had to learn on his own. This book, Light on Yoga, has been translated into 23 different languages. It's considered a Bible for millions who have learned yoga postures from him. Now, what's very interesting is that people who consider yoga merely as a physical exercise would find that Iyengar provides always for each posture a Sanskrit name, the meaning of the posture, and many of the meanings come from Hindu mythology. He points out, for instance, um, I'll quote one. He says, this pose, and it's, um, it's, it's the pose that, we're, that we just saw the picture of, the pose that we just saw. He says, this pose is sacred to a yogi. He says, with this, and then he gives a little story from the Bhagavad Gita about the, the god Arjuna, who actually is an avatar um, or works with Krishna. Krishna teaches him. He says, so this, the one we're looking at right now, uh, this is a pose sacred to a yogi. He says, on the physical level, the effects are great. It can help the spine. It can help the abdominal organs. But on the spiritual level, it prepares you for deeper meditation. Very, very interesting. So for him, the postures always have a deeper meaning. Now, not all of them are dedicated to the gods. Some of them are dedicated to Hindu sages, who he thought were also divine, but not directly a god. Um, in, in the Hindu world, they don't really distinguish between um, someone who is divine versus a god. They, for the, the, the theology isn't really clear. Some people have compared it to saying, like, when they call a yogi or a guru divine, what they mean is what Catholics mean by a saint. Um, I don't think that's quite accurate, but we're not going to get into that right now. But just the point is, not all um, postures that Iyengar taught are directly related to a god like Shiva Vishnu, Durga, and Ganesh or something like that. Some of them are just about these human sages from a long time ago. Others, very interesting, are related to animals. Iyengar teaches uh, some postures that are related to, for instance, very famously, the dog, the downward dog. We also have one that's like a crocodile, one that's like a serpent, and one that's like a cow or um, another like a cat. Now, once again, we have to understand this from Iyengar's perspective. We have to put aside you know, the lenses that we're seeing it with. Here's the guy who, who made yoga famous in the United States. And what does he say about it? He says this, that he would always perform these puja rituals in his yoga centers or have another Brahmanic priest do so. And he would encourage the worship of the god Hanuman, who is the, the monkey god of strength, or Vishnu, or deified guru. And in fact, the worship of these deities was never far from his presence. Now, that doesn't mean that in his actual teaching that he would always talk about that. What he would typically do is focus on the physical aspects of these yoga postures. And only rarely or in other conversations would he talk about the gods. But the gods were often 
part of his conversation. And if you read his biography or his autobiography, Light on Life, he still claims to be uh, a Hindu. And he believes that the founder of yoga, Patanjali, is divine. He actually founded a temple in India so they could worship what he thinks is uh, a divine founder of yoga. And for him, the, the reason why this is possible, why do we focus on the physical aspects, he says? Well, it's not just for health, he says. It's because Westerners are not spiritual people. They need to start with the physical. They want something that they can buy. They want to be thin. They want to be beautiful. They want to have an approach to yoga that is suited to their crass minds. So I give them what they want. And so this is what he does. Uh, he actually started uh, one of the places in um, the West that he started and became popular was in Oxford, of all places. Oxford, you know, the home of English learning. Um, you know, most uh, English um, prime ministers either come from Oxford or Cambridge. So Iyengar goes there, the very center of British learning, which is going to be the top of you know, the Anglo-Saxon world of learning. He founds a yoga center close by, and people start taking classes from him in the 1960s. And so ultimately, he says that the reason why it's possible to start with the physical and move to the spiritual isn't just because it prepares you to do meditation. I'm going to quote Iyengar. He says, he erases the distinction between the physical and the spiritual. In fact, practice is infused with spirituality. He says other yogis might do meditation sitting in a corner and becoming empty. He says, I meditate not by sitting in a corner, but in every position I perform in every asana. And so the result then is that for him, yoga is not content neutral. It is imbued with the spirit that he received from his guru and from all these gurus in the past, supposedly all the way back to the god Shiva, who was called the Lord of Yoga. Now, within the Hindu system, um, here, here's a quotation from Iyengar. He says, yoga does not just change the way we see things. It transforms the person who sees. Why? Because the positions themselves have a meaning imbued within them. And that meaning is ineradicable, according to him. The next slide here of Iyengar teaching people. He's using um, a, a, just a plastic pipe in order to make sure the guy is performing his posture correctly. Why? Well, because for him to perform the posture incorrectly leads to a spiritual fault. And so he wants everyone to do it, not just so they can have um, the, you know, the correct um, musculature, but also so that their spirit is rightly ordered. And this is just people, you know, in the West who um, <laughs> it's actually just a stock photo. Um, but this illustrates, you know, my home state, California. This is what you'll see um, in San Francisco. People out in the um, San Francisco um, uh, park there. And yeah, this is very typical. Let's go to the next one. Okay. Now, according to Hinduism, yoga is called a darshana. And there are different ways of uh, defining darshana. Some people say it's a philosophy, but we've already seen yoga is not a philosophy because it's about a god, and it's about you becoming divine through these postures. And so we would say it can't be a philosophy if philosophy is, is not really about God. Uh, instead, a yoga is a way to see the world, and there are different levels. And so on the surface level, um, when, when people understand this idea of worldview, a way of seeing the world, 
um, an anthropologist who is also a missionary named Paul Hybert. He said that the surface level is just the sort of patterns of behavior, apprehended rituals. It's the thing that you're doing physically. And so that would be like the posture. He says the mid-level view of how worldview affects you is that you talk about it. There are words you use. There are places that you go. There are certain kinds of symbols that are involved. And so when people practice yoga, they, they want to be in a place that's beautiful, that's open to air, open to the sunlight. All of this has a psychological effect on you. And typically in classic yoga, in a studio, you would have a statue of a god, maybe Shiva, or there might be a Buddha, or they would have the symbol Om, which we've already seen, according to the Vedas, is a divine word meaning God. And so the idea was when you say the word Om, when, when you see this within, um, you know, it's all over yoga advertising, Om, um, really when, when you're practicing this mantra, it means you are becoming that divinity that you're speaking. He says, but the core depth level is when a worldview has its own philosophy, its logic, its categories, and those things are known only by the experts. These are the things that yogis um, write long books about in Sanskrit that most of us don't have access to. So on the service level, then, yoga is definitely available to these initiates. People can buy yoga pants, get a yoga mat, go to your local studio, your YMCA, or your gym, and you can practice these easier postures. And this happens all the time. But typically, when people are at that surface level, often they want to go deeper. And people then might seek out different teachings of gurus. Maybe they pick up the book by Iyengar. They read the introduction, 50 pages all about yoga philosophy, quoting all the Sanskrit texts that describe unity with the divine. Maybe they listen to their talks. They watch YouTube videos. They engage in more substantial conversations. They start to wonder, what does divinity mean? And can we possibly access it through our postures? And then if they go even more deep, then they start to perhaps go somewhere. I've known a number of people who've gone to India, seeking out gurus, sitting at their feet, changing their names, and taking on a new identity as a new yoga practitioner. At first, gurus typically don't want to simply instruct you. They're not ready to do this. Are you serious? It's like entering a religious order in, in the Catholic Church. Many people, to go to that level, have to go through a transformation ceremony. They themselves have to put the ghee, which is um, a purified butter, onto a spoon and burn it before the fire as a sign of their self-immolation before the divine in the world. And so then the guru is ready to teach you his secrets. And so we can see then what we're saying that yoga, it's not a philosophy. Yoga is not a religion. Yoga is a way of seeing the world, and it's a way of living in the world. It becomes an entire way of life. And just as people can enter into Christianity on a superficial level and then go more deeply, so the same is with yoga. Um, the, the, an example that I like to give people is when people um, go to, say, a mega church. I've, I've known a number of people who they started going to the mega church because they gave free coffee, or the mega church had um, like marriage counseling, or the mega church had like, you know, fun things to do for the kids. All these are free, of course. So people, um, they start to go to the mega church and they just access the free goods. And then maybe, well, let's go on Sunday. Let's see how it is. Or go to a Wednesday night talk. And now they enter in more deeply. And then pretty soon they're members. And now they're giving their tithes. And now they're, you know, leader leading their own Bible study. There are different steps to entering into um, 
the megachurch community, just as there are different steps into the yoga community. And just as like we might say the um, uh, the free coffee and the fun things to do at the megachurch, those are like the postures in yoga. Those are the first steps to engaging in this deeper culture. But the yoga postures are more deeply intertwined with the nature of yoga than just coffee because you know they could, you, you could stop giving coffee at a megachurch and it would still be what it is. But the, um, the postures themselves are embedded with the philosophy of Hinduism. So to conclude, because we're just about out of time, um, I'll, I'll, I'll first ask the question that many, many people want to ask is um, implausible claims in light of what we've seen. Some people will say yoga has no content. It's just exercise. That's very interesting that people say this, but they actually don't believe it. <laughs> Why do I say they don't believe it? Well, first of all, and I've said this in other talks, um, there's a kind of a double think about yoga. People will say, well, um, it's just a physical exercise. And then I'll say, well, why not do Pilates? And they'll say, well, because I like yoga, it's also spiritual. Okay. Secondly, as I, I pointed out at the beginning of my talk, people who practice yoga long enough will say that it is a spiritual exercise. So if you practice long, yoga long enough, it becomes spiritual. You're like, how could that possibly be the case if this is just a physical thing? It's not like baseball becomes spiritual, you know, and guys could be a professional NBA player. He's not more spiritual. I mean, Michael Jordan's a great guy, but he didn't become a saint by practicing NBA all the time. If you watch, you know, some of his interviews, he's still working on it. So, so this is, you know, this is clearly a different kind of thing than your uh, physical expertise. We don't say that people who are ex experts in, um, say, long distance running uh, or they're Olympians, that they become saints. In fact, sometimes they lose their minds. Okay. Um, now, if that's the case, physical effects would all, uh, physical fitness would only have physical effects, but yoga always has spiritual effects. Not only do people who practice yoga for a long time start to admit that it's spiritual, people that practice yoga for a long time, a lot of studies have shown end up abandoning monotheism. They end up abandoning the idea of a personal God and they believe that God exists everywhere. Why would that be? Why do people abandon Christianity if they were Christian when they, when they entered, even practicing Christians? Over a long enough period of time, most practicing Christians who do yoga leave behind Christianity. Why? It's because embedded within not only the physical postures, but also the meditations that are taught is this idea that everything is divine. Okay, so that's the first objection. The second objection is, well, maybe I can counteract the effects of yoga. Maybe I can um, pray to God. I can pray to Jesus while I'm doing yoga. And maybe I have a rosary in my hand while I'm doing yoga. And therefore, I'll be immune to these temptations against the faith. Now, I think that... Um, People, people who, who think more clearly just would not say this kind of thing in other contexts. So for instance, um, you know, if, if, uh, if you're in a room with a smoker, secondhand smoke, you're like, I'm not smoking, but you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to wear my mask and hope that like the secondhand smoke doesn't bother me. You're like, no, what you do is you get away from the smoker. Or a teen might say, you know, say to his parents, like, oh, I can go to this party where they're drinking and doing drugs, but I'm going to think of God while they're doing it. <laughs> sure you are, Billy. 
The fact is that people want to eat their cake and have it too. They want to put themselves in a dangerous situation and not be injured. They want to pick up the snake and not be bitten. This is imprudent. Even if it were possible, I would advise people not to do so. It used to be that Catholics were told not to go to Protestant services, and Protestants likewise were told not to go to Catholic Mass. Why? Because they both recognized that if you're there long enough, you'll see some of the good, and you'll then associate that with the entire thing and want to enter into it. And so this is why many people who have a spouse who is non-Catholic, they're going to be pulled away, or that non-Catholic spouse eventually is going to convert. But there's never neutrality. When you have two different systems, you can't have a balance. There's always going to be an imbalance in favor of the stronger one. So despite your better judgment, if you're open to the influence of people who say thing, false things, eventually your emotions will start to correspond with what they're doing. And the danger of yoga is that it feels so good. And by feeling good, by having beneficial physical effects, you start to think that it actually is a good thing. But we all know there are all sorts of things that give wonderful emotions that maybe are not good to do. And physically experiential or physically ecstatic moments may not be the thing that is best for your soul. And so then we have to consider not only what yoga is, and why people do it. But next time, we're going to talk more about how people do it and what it means in the deeper levels. But we'll have to leave that for next time. Thank you. Wow. Thank you so much, Father Ezra. That was incredible in, in getting a really firm foundation into well, what you're going to be talking to us about next week very much already looking forward to uh to hearing what you have to say with another hour to uh to discuss it so thank you so much yeah yeah my pleasure so we will move into q a here in just a moment i'll give you a chance to um to uh gather your thoughts and get your questions in father are you ready for some questions Yes. Can, can I answer one of them uh, that I that I just read? <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. Go for and, it. And then I'll let you curate uh, after that. So, um, so first, somebody asked me about the um, the mega church example, and they said people are going to a mega church, you know, in order to worship, but yoga is not a religion or philosophy. And um, actually, there are a number of people who will go to a mega church at first simply for the benefits. There are many sort of, you know, open-minded people, open to spirituality in general, and their friends are like, hey, let's go get a free coffee. Okay, sure. And then they go, they get it the free coffee, and now they're there. Now they're in the premise. And um, and then they can be drawn in. And people are like, hey, you know, there's going to be some music. You want to come to a free concert? And some people say, sure. And now they're listening to free music. They're not there to worship. They're there simply for the free stuff. Um, and and so that's that's the parallel there. Although, of course... In the end, um, yes, you know, the mega church is a church of sorts or a you know, ecclesial community, and, and yoga is a different kind of thing, but they both have sort of these layers of engagement that can draw you into the deeper spiritual meaning of them. So I want to start, Father, with um, a question. Well, I'm going to kind of extend what, what Bradley has to say here, but I'll read his question first and then um, add something here. He says, the Apostle Peter reminds us to be partakers of the divine nature. So as a yoga principle, could the individual self 
as being absorbed into the transcendental self equate with Peter's exhortation. And I would add to that, you were talking about, you know, the divine and creation and whatnot. And, and we as Catholics believe that God is, is omnipresent. And so what are, can you make those distinctions? Because I think we as Christians recognize there's something a little weird about what they're saying, but we can't quite put our finger on how to distinguish it from Christianity. Yeah. Yeah. Great. So, so we, we always have to come back to the incarnation and for us as Christians, the incarnation, Christ is the word made flesh. This is a unique incarnation. God only became flesh once in the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary. This never happened and this will never happen again. So it's a, it's a unique instance of God uniting himself with humanity. And Jesus is a divine person. He's actually personal, just as you and I are. He loves us. He knows us. He thinks of us. And he reaches out to us and wants a relationship with us. They do not think of divinity that way. For them, um, it's it the these um, people like Buddha or Christ or Krishna, they're sort of like finger puppets of the divine. It's not an actual person. It, it's just like a mask that this abstract divinity puts on in order to try to present itself. And behind the mask, there's not a person. There's nothing that loves you. There's no relationship. The 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 what we think is a relationship according to the Hindus is actually a falsehood. It's just an illusion. So so it's completely different from our understanding of how am I united? How am I united with Jesus? Well, because I love him and because he knows me. It's like the way that I can be united with my my human friends, except it's in a more profound, it's a deeper, more infinite, infinitely intimate way, but it's it's basically the same kind of mode. You know, I I you know, Annie knows her husband. And she she thinks of him. She can smile at him. She and he loves her. And there's a mutual union of spirits. But they're still separate people. <laughs> and so, likewise, we say that Jesus is separate from us, no matter what. Even though I can be united to him by love and by understanding, we're still separate and individuals. And so that's the ultimate distinction. So when Saint Peter says that we take on the divine nature, what he means is that our human nature now receives grace and it elevates our human nature in such a way that we can be friends with God. Because God can't be friends with something that's not divine. Just like I can't really be a friend with a stone because a stone can't respond to me. So likewise, God, to be friends with a human being, he has to raise our human nature so we can think of him in a divine way, so we can love him with divine love. And so, th so this is what is the participation in divine nature. We remain human beings. We remain personal, individual, distinct from Jesus, but we love him with the love of the Holy Spirit. Fascinating. All right, Maria here on screen, go ahead, take yourself off a mute and ask your question. So thank you. Um, I, I'm wondering if it's an oversimplification to apply the duck test. Um, if it looks like a duck, swims like a duck, quacks like a duck, it's a duck. Um, what would you say to that? Uh, wh why would it be an oversimplification? just saying that if it looks like yoga quack you know sounds like yoga is you know i'm psychic it is yoga and therefore you know we really like it's simple we you know we, we don't you know that's what i'm saying okay i, I i'm not sure and I should understand. we avoid it in that yeah beyond that like okay it looks like yoga so maybe i should do it is that right uh, maria yeah okay okay yeah so i'm going to get into this um more in the next talk um because 
uh, in the next part of the talk, I try to, to talk about discernment and um, identifying what is actually yoga and what's not. Mm. Um, because one, one of the difficulties is, and somebody else gave this, it's a comment I think similar. They said, it seems like yoga is being used in a generic sense. Like people use the word Xerox for photocopiers um, or, you know, like they used to say scotch tape or something like that, tissue paper, um, you know, is Kleenex. So um, there are things that people call yoga, which are in fact just normal stretches. You know, like I have this book, the... 2001 or something um, yoga postures. And some of them are just like, you know, normal, like you're sitting down. Oh, that's the yoga posture. And you're bending over like that's a yoga posture too. And so they try to make everything yoga. And then suddenly you can't do anything that's not yoga. And like, oh, you did yoga in an accident. Did you know it? And like pointing is a you know, yoga posture. Now, like I, you know, there's nothing I can do to avoid yoga. So, um, so I'd say that's not true. And, and even as I pointed out, Iyengar in his, um, uh, light on yoga, some of the postures that he has um, are related to gods, some are related to Hindu uh, you know, mystics or sages, and then some are related to animals. And, um, and the interesting thing is that what that shows us is that there are different sources for the postures. And, um, and so when you walk into your gym or you, you know, something like that, people say, let's do yoga now, let's do chair yoga. And it's like for old people. And we used to call that stretching and they call that yoga just because it sounds more attractive. It sounds like mystical or scientific or just like has this sheen of attractability when it, instead of saying, okay, we're going to have senior stretches and people are like, well, what's that? We're like, we're senior chair yoga. And they're like, oh, that sounds nice. So, so, so I would agree that um, not everything that goes under the title yoga is in fact the thing that comes from Hindu roots. And that that's one of the very difficult things that we have with discernment. Mary Grace here on screen. Go ahead, take yourself off of mute and you can ask your question. My question is, so Pilates and Tai Chi, are they just merely exercises or did they, have they developed, have they separated themselves what you, from what used to be a religion? Okay. So, um, about Tai Chi, uh, now I, I am not an expert on Tai Chi, and um, but my understanding of it is um, there are different kinds of martial arts, right? And so some martial arts are less united to this philosophy of Chi. The philosophy of Chi is the idea that there's energy that exists all throughout the universe, and by practicing the martial art, you harness that energy, the Chi, you absorb it into yourself, and then you can use it in order to, um, you know, perform actions like martial arts, but also sometimes they think you can perform like magic and stuff. So, so you can see how there's a similarity with certain kinds of yoga thought and chi is like this, there's sort of like this energy everywhere and you're trying to harness it into yourself. Um, now, some, some martial arts don't require that at all. And, and like they have a clear objective, which is like to defend yourself from somebody else or to attack them or something. So those kinds of martial arts, not a problem at all. And you can do those, and they may not they may not even bring up their philosophy. And um, others, some dojos might talk about the philosophy and some don't. And actually, we had a brother, um, a Dominican brother who was from um, uh, Vietnam. And he said in his in like in his region of Vietnam, he says none of the Christians would do martial arts because it was bound up with this false chi philosophy. And ultimately, like energies, 
it's similar to Reiki. Like you, you get into that, you think you're harnessing the energy, bad stuff happens. And the U.S. bishops have condemned Reiki precisely for this issue that it makes people then start to perform these actions that are kind of like occultish, like thinking you can draw energy down through you. And um, ultimately, it can uh, become involved in the occult. So Tai Chi is closer to that um, because Tai Chi is less a martial art. Like it's not that useful. If people attack you and you try to do like slow motion Tai Chi moves, like you're not going to protect yourself very well. Um, and so it's closer to the idea of harnessing this energy. But even in itself, um, it still has this other kind of motion. So Tai Chi would be similar, I would say, to like some kinds of like yoga for exercise. Now, Pilates, as far as I understand, has no connection whatsoever. And the founding of Pilates has nothing to do with yoga. It has nothing to do with any, any of this harnessing of the energy. They just have some um, motions that resemble those of yoga. And then often people try to combine them because they have like a similar similar physical aspect. Although, of course, like advanced Pilates also uses some machines and things like that. So anyway, I hope that answers the question. Like basically some martial arts are problematic. Um, most of them aren't. Father, uh, there's a question here asking if um, we should, if we've ever done yoga, should we bring that to confession? Is it sinful? Okay. Okay. Excellent question. So, so the first thing is um, if you have ever chanted a Sanskrit chant, a mantra like Om, you definitely need to go to confession because the Sanskrit chants, those are calling upon the gods or it's saying that you are a god. And, and I'll talk about this more in my, in my next talk, but um, exorcists, I've spoken with exorcists in the United States, in um, the Philippines, and here in, in Italy. And from all three continents, they have told me that people have become possessed by the higher forms of yoga. And this is typically when they're doing the Sanskrit chants. And so you definitely need to go to confession if you've done that. It would be the equivalent of saying a magic spell, even if you don't know what you said. You're like, I don't know what I said, but I said something in Latin and I'm not, I, I know it wasn't a prayer. Like, that's bad news. You definitely need to protect yourself. So go to confession. Um, if you've ever used a statue, I remember when I was in India, um, there was a guy with a little cart. He's like, you know, is like, like it, it, it was, um, it was one of these carts that you push and, um, and inside the cart, there are like these uh, little drawers. And he's like, there is a God for everybody. And, and like, he's like picking up a little statue and there's a statue of like, you know, there's one and another. And I'm like, no, 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 I, I, I don't need a blessing from a God. You know, my God is more powerful. And he says, oh, do you have an enemy? He says, you call upon Kali. Kali will defeat your enemies. I'm like, oh my gosh. So some people have statues of gods or the Buddha in their home. Definitely you need to get rid of that. I, I've helped people to um, get rid of some of these things in their house. Um, also, it, you know, the, the Om symbol, because they're so bound up with the spiritual that um, it's really spiritually dangerous to have these. In fact, some, at least, especially the ones that are uh, uh, sold in India, many of them, people will pray over them, which is a curse, and the, and the prayer will attach a demon to it. So you don't want to have the statue in your home. You don't want to do anything in front of the statue. If you're doing yoga postures in front of the statue, you should go to confession. Um, if you're calling upon the gods, okay. Now let's suppose that you're doing something else like P90X and you're in the gym and they're like, okay, everybody, time to calm down and we're going to do a couple of yoga postures. Okay, everybody stretch. And you're like, okay, I'm stretching. 
Um, do you need to go to confession for that? I think the answer is no. And the reason why is because um, it's it's so decontextualized from its original roots that um, I don't think there's like a spiritual value there directly. Now, if they start to do meditations and stuff like that, you got to be really careful because even P90X, some of the meditations, they just pick up the, you know, the, the yoga book. They're like, I don't know what to say in the meditation. And they're like, you're God and you're sinking into the earth and you're becoming one with everything. And you're kind of like, oh, that sounds nice. And now, now what you've done is you started to agree with the philosophy. So, so I, I, I think there's room for people who have, you know, done some of the postures to say, I don't think I was sinning. I don't think I was doing anything wrong. And they're probably correct. But a lot of people get involved in things they're not really thinking about very carefully. And, and that could put them in a spiritually vulnerable position. It'd be like going to um, a bar where there's a strip club or something like that. And you're like, hey, I didn't look at the, you know, I, I was just, I was just drinking. You're like, you shouldn't be there. <laughs> Makes sense. Makes sense. Okay. So we'll wrap up uh, the conversation today, Father, with this. Are there, can you talk about, just to to end on kind of a positive note here, can you talk <laughs> about some some positive postures of prayer that we have in in our lexicon, so to speak, as Catholics? Yeah. So, um, so, so first I would just say, um, exercise is good. It's important to do exercise, especially we're also sedentary. I'm a Dominican. I'm always at my desk. Um, so I encourage you do exercise. Uh, Jesus, you know, he loves you for that. So, um, so that's, that's the first thing. And, um, now St. Paul does say, and I'll get at this next time. He says, but exercises of limited value compared to your soul. So if you're going to exercise, you should pray too. Um, Yoga tries to put prayer and exercise together. We as Christians, we can separate them more easily, and I think that's the better way to do it. However, sometimes praying with your body is good, but you're not you're not doing the pose in order to strengthen yourself. You're doing it so your prayer is more fervent. And this is why um, when you kneel down, when you bow your head to the ground, you can do this in your room when nobody's watching, close your door and your spouse isn't around. And you can kiss the crucifix. You can hold the crucifix to your heart. You can stand on your feet. You can stretch your arms out in the cruciform pose, looking at the crucifix. St. Dominic would do this. And, and I'll talk about, actually, St. Dominic's uh, modes of prayer next time. I encourage you to do that. So, so it's important to use your body when we pray, um, but not to do that for the sake of growing stronger, for the sake of health, because now you're mixing up the two things. It's really easy to start to think like, oh, I did the exercise, so I'm more holy. And like, well, that's a different matter, isn't it? All right, good. On that note, Father, we will uh, conclude our session today and very much look forward to the next one. Would you mind uh, closing us in prayer? Absolutely. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord God, we ask you to illuminate our minds and inflame our hearts with the love of the Holy Spirit. Help us to know you truly to love you fervently and to always seek you ardently grant us the grace to do your will and to be united with you and all the angels and saints in heaven we ask this through your holy and saving name amen in the name of the father and of the son and of the holy spirit amen we hope you enjoyed this program from the institute of catholic culture Remember to download our app and share our online library with friends, co-workers, and family members. To learn more, get involved, and support the Institute's work, 
Visit instituteofcatholicculture.org and visit us on social media.